0: Session with Dr. Fadid Good evening and welcome to in session with Dr. Fadid Holakwi. I'm your host, Dr. Fadid Holakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in 310 310- and free podcast on itunes again the studio number three one zero four four one zero five 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 before i talk about the book of the week for the past week i want to announce the book of the week for this week it is the book of why by judea pearl and dana Mackenzie. the book of why the new science of cause and effect and um it's a new book and i Have not read it, but look forward to reading it this week and talking about it on next Monday's show. All right, the book of the week for this past week was Why Buddhism is True by Robert Wright. Why Buddhism is True, the science and philosophy of meditation and enlightenment. And this was a really, really interesting book. Uh, It was recommended to me by my brother Parham, so thank you Parham for that recommendation. I had heard about it, but it was his suggestion that really uh, made me get the book and read it. So uh, the title is a very provocative one, uh, Why Buddhism is True, and it's interesting because near the end of the book, the author Robert Wright mentions that he doesn't consider himself a Buddhist, even though he might Uh, practice meditation he talks about his daily meditation practice and sees a lot of truth uh, as evidenced by the title in buddhism but he says he doesn't really consider himself a buddhist but still he thinks that we as humanity would get a lot out of learning some of the main teachings that i'll talk about that he covers in the book related to buddhism and he talks a lot about evolutionary psychology and looking at ways that we maybe have evolved to survive uh, through natural selection but that actually don't help make us happy or content and i really agree with that point and i'll get into that to begin with so evolution doesn't necessarily need or doesn't spread genes or have genes continue that have people or animals or organisms that are content and happy carrying them, the only goal is for those genes to be spread or to be passed on. So natural selection has created um, us in a way to make sure that we pass on these genes generation to generation, but it doesn't necessarily mean we're going to be happier, content if we just live the way that we um, have evolved to live essentially. And uh, that point he makes very clearly throughout the book. And also our environment has changed quite considerably from the time that we have evolved. And this is why there's a lot of things that might feel quote unquote natural or you might have a desire for, but that actually can get you in trouble or could be unhealthy for you today. Uh, Robert Wright himself talks about his own penchant for uh, powdered donuts. And how it would make sense for our ancestors to desire sweet foods and to want to have more of them because survival was not so simple back then. And if you came across sweet foods, which could have been high in or would indicate they were high in calories, it was good for you to want to have more of them because you were not sure when you would get your next meal or have access to that type of food. But of course, now we can just go to a store with very minimal effort and caloric expenditure get as much sweets as you want so that desire to want to eat sweet foods and having a sweet tooth is not really serving us well now but it did back then so there's a lot of ways that we have evolved or that our environment has changed actually and that we have not evolved for this current environment but also we have evolved not necessarily to be happy or content but just to survive and to pass on our genes. And this is where uh, essentially the argument is that if we look at what Buddhism has to offer, both in understanding humanity or understanding people and the way we think and feel in our experience and the prescriptions it has, so it's both in that sense descriptive, it describes uh, who we are and how we are and how we act, but also gives a prescription of how we can change that or modify that to actually be more content or to live a better life. Uh, that's essentially what the book um, argues or some of the main points made in the book. So again, we are not evolved to be happier, content. And even one way we see this is that we tend to think we're going to be more satisfied when we, let's say, eat something or have some experience than we actually become. And this makes sense if we think of evolution, which wants to make sure we do certain things to make sure that we do them, to think or to overestimate the pleasure you have. So going back to that powdered donut, we think it's going to be even better than it actually is or the experience we have, or even something like sex. Of course, for genes to be passed, people need to really desire having sex and wanting to have sex, but often the experience might not be quite what the buildup is like, or what the buildup might seem like of what they're going to experience. So it makes sense that we actually don't feel the amount of pleasure or enjoyment that we think we would, and that also this pleasure dissipates or goes away in two ways. One is that when we do the same thing or have the same experience, we tend to experience less pleasure over time but also the pleasure we experience is short-lived so if you have that powder donut or you have that whatever experience it might be you'll feel good momentarily but then that will soon go away and this makes sense when we think of evolution as well because in order to survive you can't just be satisfied and stop trying to um, both survive and pass on your genes you need to in a sense never be satisfied. And this is in a way um, something that the buddhist thought describes as of this feeling of never being satisfied of always desiring or craving more that we have and that we tend to feel and it feels very real because all we really think we have is our subjective experience but this is where the ideas that come about through meditation and through buddhist thought as he describes in the book can be helpful in creating some space between what we experience or what we think we're experiencing and observing that experience. So as I mentioned, uh, Robert Wright describes his own practice of meditation also some of the experiences he's had going through week-long meditation retreats and some uh, interesting, insightful moments that he has. Uh, And and they're really interesting, some of the moments he shares. For example, uh, the moment that he was in a silent meditation retreat and someone was sleeping. And he says, well, how did I know they were sleeping if my eyes were closed? Well, because they were snoring. And he describes the process he goes through of, uh, as you can imagine, getting annoyed by this experience and really disliking it, but that he was able to, rather than avoid his feelings by facing it head on and really experiencing it, um, recognize that he didn't have to have anger or hatred. He didn't have that feeling For long for that person who he really couldn't even see, he actually could have a compassionate feeling for them or a positive feeling um, towards them. So let me talk about two main uh, issues or two main concepts of Buddhism that he describes in the book uh, for some large portion of the book that are very important. One is the idea of not self. Now, as he he mentions himself at the beginning of the book that. If you don't like paradoxes or paradoxical thinking or concepts, you probably shouldn't read this book or um, really a lot of Buddhist thought won't be something you will like because you'll find a lot of these paradoxes in there. And not self uh, is one of those and definitely I see it that way. But it's this idea that we tend to feel very strongly about our sense of self, that I am this person, sometimes we can use an analogy like the CEO of my, my brain or my whole person that can control what I think, what I feel, that whatever I'm experiencing, it is so much me, that there's a strong separation between me and other people and me and the rest of the world. That's a very clear boundary. But that there's this concept in Buddhist thinking of not self, that we, in a sense, don't exist as a self, that we don't have a self. Now, where to me, especially it feels paradoxical is when describing it, they say, uh, you'll read that it says, you don't have, and you don't have this feeling or you don't, but it's, who are they talking to if there is no you? So I think there is a self, exactly what that is, I think is, is not very clear, but I think it can be modified when we recognize we don't have to be so stuck connected or attached to the way we tend to think of ourself and our being. And there's two ways of of doing this or two aspects to this that also we can break down this idea of not-self. One is the interior experience. Now what that means is usually when we have a feeling, it seems like it's very real and it's all that there is. And so for example, if I feel pain... It feels very real, and in a sense it is, but we think of it as something really bad and something that has to be avoided. And yes, pain in a way does give us this signal that something is harmful or something is not okay and that we should in some way either remove whatever is causing us pain or heal that pain or whatever it is that we might want to experience. But going back to the idea of evolutionary psychology and how at times it maybe prepares us or in a way creates us in a way that doesn't necessarily lead to contentment, but leads to surviving. It reminds me of the idea of people who run ultra marathons, which I forget how long it is exactly, but it's incredibly long distances. And they say that they realize that their body feels pain and sometimes even this pain of you can't go anymore, like a wall or an idea that they have to stop or else literally they feel like they're going to die but they know it's not true. In a way, it's like an illusion the body is telling them because it doesn't want for the body to get to a point where it really can't survive or it's going to die. So it makes sense that earlier on it might give you this message that, hey, you have to stop or you're going to die. So they realize that the pain, although it feels very real in a way, it isn't fully real. It isn't something in a way objectively true. And I know it's can be confusing to think about feelings in an objective way because it's a subjective experience, but in this way, the feeling could be said to not fully be true. If the person feels like they're in so much pain that they're about to die, but they're really not about to die, even if they keep going, we can say that this is like an illusion or a not true aspect of the feeling. So this is one part of that uh, not-self in the interior, but also just a way of distancing yourself from your emotions. One basic way that I've talked about on the show before is the very subtle difference between saying I am angry and I have a feeling of anger. Doesn't seem that different, but I am angry in a way sounds like it encompasses my whole self and I'm nothing but this angry feeling and I'm fully identified and attached with it. But I'm having an angry feeling has some distance between me and that feeling. And to me, this is where there is, I think, some level of a self which is kind of like an observer. Maybe it's consciousness, and even that I think can be um, not quite clear exactly what that is and can change from time to time. But there is that feeling that I can maybe be aware of the feeling without being attached to it. And the process of mindfulness and meditation can help create this distance or this awareness that you can have a feeling or a thought and recognize that I don't have to be attached to it. Or it isn't some absolute truth, as it so often is, or at least that's how it feels when you experience a an emotion or a thought. We think of it as so true, and this was this was what can make it so damaging. If you have a thought that I'm not good enough, and rather than it being I'm having this thought that I'm not good enough, it feels like I, there is this truth that I'm not good enough. It could have a huge impact on how we. Uh, act and how we even feel going forward about ourselves and about other people in our relationships so there is this really key importance in creating that space between myself or me as this observer and my thoughts and my feelings and also as he mentions and psychology in a sense confirms this we don't have control over our thoughts and feelings so it's not like i can just choose to think or feel whatever i want and that's why actually I don't like when some of these people say, well, you need to control your feelings or they tell people not to be sad because you should be able to control your feelings and always feel happy. I don't think that's even possible. I actually don't even think that's healthy, but we don't appear to have that kind of control. Another argument in favor of there not really being this self that is fully in control. But we, our thoughts think themselves, as he, I think he mentions a quote in the book. Our thoughts think themselves in a way our feelings can feel themselves i think we definitely can have an impact on our thoughts and our feelings but we can't just control them but what we can do is recognize them for what they are not some truths that have to be true both objectively and subjectively but as thoughts and feelings as something that is just going on we can observe them we can even learn from them. We might even act on them in some way, but we don't have to let them have control over us. So in this way, I think creating that distance between ourselves and our thoughts and our feelings actually allows us to be less controlled by them. And again, here's where I think that paradox comes in. When I say we will be less controlled by them, there is some self. So even when we're talking about not self, to me, it's not about completely being a no self at all, but that we can become more uh, distant from some of the things that we experience in a way that there maybe isn't the sense of self we tend to think of it so maybe there's a not self in that way but i think there's still some semblance of self that does exist now this book to me was so interesting and fascinating that i do want to continue talking about it because i didn't get to some of the other things i wanted to mention so after the break i'll continue talking about why buddhism is true by robert wright You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dilawakwi. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I was talking about, before the break, Why Buddhism is True by Robert Wright. Um, Usually I finish the summaries in one segment, but this book I thought... It was so interesting. I did want to devote some more time and I didn't get to to talk about everything I wanted to talk about in the first segment. So I'll continue uh, in a way where I left off, but I was talking about this concept of not self and in a way losing that sense of self that we have, especially in the ways that it does hurt us. And again, the paradox is there when I say us, there's some self that we're talking about. So there was two ways I said, the interior and the exterior. So in the interior Um, i was mentioning how through things like mindfulness through meditation we can become aware that we have these feelings but they don't have to be fully true or we don't have to be fully immersed in them and think of them as some kind of objective truth Uh, even he talks about um, a negative feeling towards himself that he had and during uh, a, a meditation that he had during one of these meditation retreats. And he mentions how during those one week meditation retreats, he he has, he has gets a little bit deeper and which makes sense and has sometimes insights or experiences that he doesn't have in his own daily practice. But in one of these retreats, he was having this negative um, thought or feeling about himself. And he said he was able to recognize it in some way as if these were different pathways in his brain communicating or really but just in a way distancing himself from that feeling and that it was so um it was very intense and in a way intensely beautiful and made him realize he didn't have to let's say believe that or be so hard on himself and he mentions that a couple times in the book that he's so hard on himself and even um it almost was a little heartbreaking because he talked about feeling that self-love was something that he struggled with. But I'm glad he mentioned that because I think it's something that so many of us deal with and and loving ourselves is so important, but it can be so difficult for many of us. So I actually thought it was very, um, although he didn't expand on it, but even just mentioning it, that vulnerability to talk about that struggle with self-love, I think is important because um, here he is this incredibly gifted uh, psychologist and writer, and to hear him say that, I think for me it, it caught me maybe by surprise, but I thought it was interesting. It reminds me of how complex we each are and how um, self love is an issue that everyone deals with from every aspect or walk of life. But so he mentioned this feeling, this not so self loving feeling or thought he was having, but that by being aware that these were in a way thoughts in his brain or even different parts of his brain were communicating and there could be a, a thought opposite to that in a way um, and I'm not exactly maybe describing the story perfectly but essentially that was what he was talking about how that was so helpful for him and had such a good he has such a good experience with that and he says he doesn't necessarily never beat himself up or has never it's not that he's never hard on himself but he feels it happens less which is worth a lot and very meaningful. But this idea that when we distance ourselves from our thoughts and our feelings, they have less control over us, uh, I think is incredibly valuable and something very important. And he also talks about how many psychologists describe the way that the brain works rather than this CEO that's in control of everything is that there's these different modules that the brain has um, for kinship, or for disease prevention or for different things that would be helpful to survival or passing on genes and different ones become in a way the most powerful at different times. And that's the one we act on. That's the one that in a way gets to decide what happens next or how we behave and what we do. So again, this less idea that we have this sense of self that is fully in control. And so I think I agree with that, that this idea that there's less control than we think we have, on ourselves is accurate. I think there's some semblance of a self, exactly what that is, uh, I think is hard to define, but something is there. But so that was more the interior aspect of not-self. The exterior aspect of this is this idea that we can blur the lines between where I end and other people or even just the rest of the world begins and that there can be this feeling through meditation and through this, um, these, these ideas uh, that you become more connected to the whole world. And I, I really think that's an important one too. So we feel this interconnectedness between all people, all beings, you know, all living life. And even to me with things, you can have this experience that everything is really interconnected. And this is a very, uh, a concept I see a lot in Buddhist thought that, we see everything is interconnected. And we, when we have this feeling of interconnectedness, we of course are going to be more compassionate and caring to other people. Because uh, as it's put, I think in the book, or I forgot where I read this recently, but this idea of if you see everything is interconnected, how could you hurt someone else? Because that would be like hurt cutting off your own leg, if you really feel and sense that interconnectedness. And it's hard to really say how true or untrue this is, But I really do think when we see the world, we see that we are really much more interconnected than we can sometimes think. And this sense of self, I think, again, is an illusion that makes us feel so separate. But we really are not that separate. We are much more connected. And he shares the story of, again, being on a meditation retreat. And I think it was a pain in his leg. um, And there was a bird singing. And he said that in that moment of deep meditation, he realized he really couldn't see so much that the bird singing or the song of the bird was different or coming from a different place than the pain in his leg or the feeling in his leg or there was such an interconnectedness it was blurred where he ended and and this bird began or really it was just all one thing and many people describe this feeling of oneness of interconnectedness that they have after a meditation or when they've meditated for a long period of time, they start to develop this mindset or this feeling of interconnectedness, which I think is is very important. Uh, and he talks about even this idea of, when he talks about why Buddhism is true and why he thinks this book is important, um, this idea that we are going towards, um, or we're in a very critical period of time in history where we can actually really end all creation or end all of, I shouldn't say creation, but living uh, beings on earth through things like nuclear weapons, and we're moving towards more polarization and uh, becoming more divided. And so if we actually lose this concept, or if we don't gain this concept of interconnectedness, there are some potentially serious consequences. And this relates to the other important issue that I wanted to talk about, our concept that runs throughout this book, and this idea of emptiness, which, uh, in in on the surface maybe sounds really bad because if someone tells you their life is full of emptiness, which I guess is almost like an oxymoron, but if they talk about emptiness, we think of something very negative. But the sense that emptiness is um, mentioned here or this concept is the idea that we have to recognize that everything we encounter or that we normally encounter has what you can call an essence, or even to put it differently in this idea of, of feelings, which are good and bad, Good means approach, bad means get away from or don't uh, or get rid of. Uh, everything has this kind of valence, good and bad. You sometimes might not be aware of it, but it really is the case. When you don't like someone, you just have this feeling of bad when you see them or even think about them. And if it's someone good, someone you love, just thinking about them makes you feel good. And even of objects, they, he talks about research they've done where people, for things you might think of as innocuous objects, people have positive or negative feelings that they just have about those things. So we tend to have feelings about everything, uh, even if we don't realize it. And in a way, this is almost like judgments that we attach to things that we already have, that this is good and this is bad. And for example, he talks about an experience with a, a buzzsaw, which we tend to think of as a really negative sound. But during meditation that he was able to immerse himself so much or connect so much with the sound and actually really hear it for what it was, all the collections of sounds that it was, and it didn't sound so ugly anymore, almost in a way it could be like music. But what this idea of emptiness is, is that we take away the essence of what things have, and in this way of being mindful, of really experiencing things for what they are, we objectively or as objectively as possible take them in without these assumptions that we already have, that this is good, this is bad. And really, if we look at research on the way our brains work, we see that these really are unconscious very often. Um, There's all the research on implicit bias, and people can take the implicit association test and see that even if they logically or on the surface think, for example, they think whites and blacks are equal and they have no negative feelings about either group, they might take this test and see that they have an unconscious negative bias towards one of the groups that they might not have thought of. And people even can experience a lot of shame because they think, oh my gosh, does this make me a racist? And I might talk about that a bit later, either today or in another show. But this idea that we have these automatic judgments, good and bad about things, is very much true. And the less we can have them, the better off we can be, especially when it comes to how we interact with one another when we already assume I'm a Republican or I'm a Democrat and people of the other group have to be bad, there's not a lot of ways for us to get closer to connect with one another. And that's what we're seeing in today's political climate, especially here in the United States, where people are so polarized that once they already see you as being from the other group, it doesn't matter what you say, it's already bad. There's already that essence that you have to them of being bad and being not good. And whatever you do or say is already something really bad and horrible, and they're not going to like it no matter what. So if we can lose this idea of attaching these things to people, that essence that they have, we actually can see them in a way more objectively or see more of who they are. And it's interesting because this word emptiness, again, sounds very dark in a way and bleak and if you you think that you would see the world as more with this idea of emptiness it would seem darker but as he describes and as most people who have become meditators for long periods of time will describe when things lose that attachment that essence it actually becomes the world becomes more beautiful and to me this makes sense because i think when you lose that attachment you see everything more fully Uh, and even see the complexity of things more clearly. So even when it comes to people, let's say you have a husband or a wife, I don't think it means you'll forget who they are, and they'll have no essence whatsoever. But if you are more mindful when you interact with them, if you are more, uh, maybe have less of this essence, and by essence also in this case it could mean thinking you know who they are, you'll actually be able to see the the complexity that is who that person is, which is that they are much more complex than you can actually know. So any just essence you can have, yes, maybe there's a positive or negative, which hopefully it's positive if it is your significant other, but there's much more to them than just a categorization or what you think you already know of them. And I think that's something that people, as they become more mindful, they experience is that maybe they'll say, you know what, as I'm more mindful, I used to walk by this tree my house every day and never look at it but now i look at it with awe and see how amazing and beautiful it is so people actually become more um, amazed by the world in a a good way they see the beauty in the world and see the beauty in things when they actually lose the attachment or this idea of essence that things have that things are just good and bad and have this kind of um, uh, uh, attachment to them or this kind of value to them. So uh, I'm going to wrap things up talking about this book, which I really enjoyed and highly recommend, Why Buddhism is True by Robert Wright. Um, But he describes how he thinks if all of us could adopt some of these ideas, and especially, I think meditation, I would hope that everyone starts to meditate. And as he says himself, you know, you don't have to go on these retreats, or he talks about his own experience of maybe doing 30 minutes or 20 minutes to 50 minutes a day. Uh, it can make a huge impact on yourself. So personally it could be very, uh, important and, and beneficial, but he describes how he thinks it could be a better thing for the whole world. If everyone is, has this less sense of, or loses the self, the self feeling, This not self becomes more of who they are. And they stop attaching these essences to people in groups. And if we lose that border of self. And see, everyone is more interconnected. Then, of course, we're going to be more mindful of the judgments we make. We make going to war, um, climate change issues that affect all of humanity. We're going to be aware that all people are me, and I am all people. And so, everyone deserves to be taken care of, and we have to take care of one another, and we can't hurt one another. So, I agree with them with this idea that if we lose that attachment to ourself and do recognize the interconnectedness that we have, um, that will be a good thing. And if people meditate more, it does tend to lead to people being more calm. And that overall will be a good thing as well. So I think there's a lot of wisdom uh, in this book. And I really hope people will read it. And I thank my brother Parham again for uh, recommending it to me again. But this, the book was Robert Wright's book, Why Buddhism is True. The science and philosophy of meditation and enlightenment. All right, going into our last commercial break, studio number 3104410555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So yesterday was Women's Equality Day here in the United States to commemorate uh, the passing of the 19th Amendment, which um, was in 1920 and gave the right to vote to uh, women or basically um, suffrage, as it's called. And I was actually with a group of individuals, and I want to thank my friends Nariman and Melody, who hosted us to actually talk about the equality of men and women and it was really nice discussion and um, it was very uplifting to hear various people's thoughts although uplifting while at the same time recognizing how much work still needs to be done so that part of it um, wasn't necessarily always feeling so good but we have to have these conversations in order to continue progress and to have growth but it it was a really nice conversation and discussion that we had and in some ways there was some connections that i think could be made to what I was just talking about in the book, um, Why Buddhism is True, by Robert Wright. Um, this idea of emptiness, which again sounds in a way negative and partially it could be due to translation, but nonetheless. But this idea that we we don't have to attach these essences to people, men, women, um, gay, straight, Republican, Democrat, whatever it might be. And to me actually recognizing that all human beings actually do have this essence to me, although I think we can respect all living beings, but that all human beings are worthy of respect and in that way already are equal, that we don't have to even think about or debate that, that we give equal respect to all human beings no matter what. And then so whatever else characteristics they have, doesn't make them better or worse but can actually be recognized and celebrated and just appreciated but i think what happens is that when we don't recognize this equality and also sometimes when we don't recognize it in ourselves because we feel less than in some way we try to find ways to put ourselves above one another whether it's our group our tribe our nation our political party our sexual orientation our religion whatever it might be, we try to find ways to put ourselves above one another. But the idea should be that equal rights and being equal should be something afforded to all. You know, I think we, we see various movements, for example, just talking about women's right to vote. So giving women equal rights. And back then, well, should we or shouldn't we? And then it's about the civil rights movement, or even before that, the end of slavery. And should we give... African Americans blacks should we give them equal rights or when it comes to more recent times when it comes to gay marriage should gays be allowed to be to marry should we give them those rights and to me the idea is always we're talking about human rights so the question should in its in essence answer itself all humans should be given equal rights so the answer is yes should women have the right to vote back then yes should blacks be given freedom in every sense of the word. And of course, we have work to do in that regard. Um, But as far as at least legally, we moved towards that. Yes. And should gays be allowed to marry? Yes. I don't think we have to think about that. To me, when someone asks about should some group have equal rights, it's just the answer is yes. But when we accept that all human beings are equal and deserve equal rights then we can actually enjoy the differences rather than use them to um, make hierarchies or put some people above one another because of course an important point is that equality doesn't mean sameness both in the sense that people are all exactly the same and that also everyone has to be treated the same for there to be true equality the kind of classic example is if you have two kids and one of them needs glasses, well, it doesn't mean you have to just buy the other one glasses to treat them equally. It doesn't mean you have to treat them the same. The other one doesn't need glasses. Or an even more extreme example, if someone is choking, well, you don't want to say, well, I don't want to perform the Heimlich maneuver just on you. I'm going to make sure I perform it on everyone. No, you just save that person with the Heimlich maneuver. Other people don't need it in that moment, so you don't have to give that to them. So equality doesn't mean sameness of treatment or how we should treat one one another in order to be fair, to be just. And it doesn't mean we all have to be the same. And I think this is another one of those paradoxes, but maybe not such a complex one, this idea that we are all the same and we are all unique and different, which I think is very true. Every human being that you meet has a humanness to them. And maybe I can understand how I might be sounding like I'm going against this idea of essence, but to me, there's something that we can say about human beings that we can see each other as human beings and take that in. And so everyone you see is a human being, and there's something that connects us in that way. And I think that's so true. And we see that, that although you might think of yourself as so different from some group, or you might hate some group, whether it's Uh, a national thing, a religious thing, ethnic thing. But when people are exposed to one another more closely and learn about each other's lives and talk to each other, they see how they are much more similar than they thought. And this is actually why uh, things like prejudice tend to break down when people interact with people from that other group more extensively. Not just interact because we have that, but cooperate, work together, learn about each other's lives. You see that pretty much all of us care about the same types of things. We get happy, we get sad. When we bleed, we all bleed the same. Um, That's a line from a Muse song that I like, but we all have these similar things. So we all are in that way the same. But then at the same time, each and every one of us is this unique uh, complex unfolding of a human being that is unique to that person. And we get to see that person and celebrate them for who they are and they have different characteristics, some of which we maybe now make more salient, but don't have to be even this idea of men and women. We can celebrate it now that we're, we're trying to achieve equality, but maybe there's a day where we won't think of it so much, just like race is something that especially, uh, maybe all over the world, but in the United States still is such a salient factor, such a salient feature that we notice it instantly but it doesn't have to be. And I truly do believe there will be a time, maybe not so far in the future, uh, where race won't be such a big deal. Maybe for lots of reasons, including that there will be so much, um, if you want to say, um, there won't be this idea of races being so separate, because as we already are seeing, there's mixing of races or really whatever you want to call it, that it's not so there won't be so much of an idea of who is us and them. We'll realize that really there's just an us. That's all of us. Um, but I think people will become more aware that we don't have to differentiate in a negative way or put hierarchies on these things. Uh, I like to share this story because I think it's so sweet and related to what I'm talking about of the two young boys Um, I don't know if it was last year or two years ago, and they were best friends. One was white, one was black, and I think it was the one that was white. He was going to get a haircut, and he actually asked to get a haircut just like his uh, black friend, his best friend, and he told his mom, I'm so excited to go to school on Monday because the teacher won't be able to tell us apart, and I can't wait to see her reaction or to see her confusion. And when I I read this myself and when you tell people the story, they kind of laugh and giggle and we think, oh, how cute, you know, and we kind of think, well, that kid doesn't get it. It's cute that he doesn't understand. But really, when you think about it, it's us that don't understand that race doesn't have to be such a big deal or that skin color doesn't have to be such a big deal that we think that it's the first thing anyone will notice about two people when they see them, that it's the most important thing. So in a way, although... This child, we think he's ignorant. Maybe we're the ones who have been miseducated to understand and believe something that isn't really so true or true in the way we think that it is. And I think that's so important. That's the hope I always have is that I think in children and in these next generations, we always can um, really get out of their way. It's not that we have to really teach them to see things in this way, but get out of their way so that they can actually express what's maybe more of the truth, which is that human beings don't have to be differentiated or uh, put into groups or put into hierarchies, especially because of things as so insignificant and things that don't really matter. So this conversation we had yesterday about the equality of women and men was really inspiring. And I wanted to talk about that on the show today because I think it's important for us to move towards this idea of true equality. And to me, when we have that equality, and another point I'd want to make is uh, this word feminism, which I know it, it, it's such a, like a stigmatized term or has, it's so emotionally loaded because I think uh, of the connotations that some people have towards it. And I know people can think of it as men bashing or women wanting to have more power than men or women putting men down or this idea that women are trying to make men into women or all these kinds of things, but really to me, feminism as I believe it's defined and described really is about having equal rights for women, which I think is something everyone should get behind. And I don't know how anyone could disagree with that idea that we should have equal rights for women, not just for women, because of course, when any part of our population is held back, we all pay that price because we don't get to allow them to contribute in the way that they can to meet their full potential. And that is the same for any group, whether it's a race, whether it's about sexual orientation, when we hold any group back, when you don't give them full rights to be themselves and to express themselves and to have the opportunities that they deserve to have, we all pay the price for that. And I think that's something important to keep in mind. But this idea of all human beings, we have this essence to me that makes us human and that is what makes us worthy of love and respect. And to bring it back to this idea of self-love that I mentioned in the previous segment, we also have to hold that for ourselves, that I myself am worthy of love because I am a human being. I deserve respect. I deserve love. I deserve to be treated nicely. I'm not any better than anyone else, but I'm certainly not worse than anyone else in that sense, either. I see myself as an equal. And so in that way, I love myself as I love, all human beings. And I think that's something that we can strive towards. And actually, I think, again, bringing back our book that I talked about tonight, Why Buddhism is True by Robert Wright, meditation can be a great path or one tool towards uh, moving towards that of recognizing these things, becoming more mindful, becoming more aware. In that way, detaching ourselves from ourselves and immersing and connecting more the rest of the world, becoming more aware of the interconnectedness that is true, that we are all um, responsible for one another, because there really isn't so much of a one another, we're all just one, and I hope we can move towards that. So thank you again to Nariman and Melody for hosting us yesterday for our discussion on the equality of men and women. Just wanted to talk about that a bit. And another big thank you to Robert Wright for writing this beautiful book, Why Buddhism is True, The Science and Philosophy of Meditation and Enlightenment. If you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. All right, thank you to everyone listening out there and to Amir here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dalakwi. Have a wonderful night.